2010 is drawing to a close. Chris Smith's parents believe their son is now wandering around the world. He's got money to spend, thanks to a payout he got when he sold his share of the company he co-owned with his partner, Ed Shin. The journey had started off looking like an idyllic escape for a stressed-out young man. He was on a sailboat. He told his brother he had a former Playboy playmate for company. But a few weeks have stretched into months, and he's no longer talking about tropical paradises. Chris now seems drawn to trouble spots and danger zones. It's been nearly six months now, and the Smith family is sitting down without him for Thanksgiving dinner. His sister-in-law, Leah, tells me that up till then, the family never really talked about how weird everything was. They are emotionally close, but like so many of us, they lead busy lives. Paul's parents were busy running multiple businesses, and then Paul at 800 Exchange. I was busy with little kids, and I didn't feel like we were talking a ton because everyone was so busy, like maybe once every two weeks or so. The Smiths had hoped that by the time they sat around the Thanksgiving table, Chris would be right there with them. Erica by his side, a diamond sparkling on her finger. But instead of glowing smiles, there are now two empty seats. All they have are those emails. For me, as they started coming in, it was more um, very sporadic. And usually I wrote a lot more emails because I'm missing him. I'm wondering, where are you? So I would do that. And then, um, then occasionally we'd come back, well, Mom, you know, I haven't been where there's been any Internet. And... You know, I care about you, but this is where I'm going right now, and that kind of thing. Chris's emails have made it clear by now that he has no plans to step foot in the U.S. anytime soon. And then there are the places he is going. He would say, you know, I'm going from India into uh, Egypt, and I'm crossing the Aden Sea with some guy I met. Well, I had been investigating. There's pirates in the water and all of this, so I was terrified. So I was telling him, be careful, you know, don't be doing anything like, you know, like that. But I wouldn't get an email back. And Chris would have always, anywhere he would call or emailed and said, hey, you know, I'm okay. This is what I'm doing. But long silences. And it felt strange. It didn't feel like him. And then Leah remembers something that didn't feel like the Chris she knows. I remember sitting with my mother-in-law and I said, I just don't buy it. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, I don't buy that he puked and peed in the middle of the office. It just seems like something's off. And she had not heard that story. And so then my mother-in-law immediately went to my father-in-law upstairs and said, this is what they say happened. And my father-in-law was like, no, that, that's not what's going on. He, being in law enforcement, he knew that something was really wrong. Chris's dad, Steve Smith, is a retired cop. Chris had actually or they say, had gotten uh, drunk at the uh, office, mm-hmm. had vomited and urinated on the walls, and then they started cleaning it up. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, that sounds really suspicious to me. Why? Now it's because it's just it's not Chris. Mm-mm. You're going to go make a million-dollar deal, and you're going to get drunk going to it? It made no mm-hmm. sense to me at all. So I thought, what the hell, I just... I mean, after the Thanksgiving, we were thinking something's really wrong. The Smiths are a tight-knit family. 
to them what seemed most out of character is that Chris has always been there for his little brother. But now, he's AWOL. So that night, after dinner, Steve Smith settles down at a computer. He emails Chris this plea. Call your brother. He needs your help ASAP. Dad. I'm Matt Gutman. This is 2020's Cutthroat, Inc. In the weeks after Thanksgiving, Paul sees clearly that it's time for him to leave the 800 exchange. He's pretty sure Ed Shin is stealing from the company. So, like his brother did, Paul gets himself a lawyer. Money was coming in from our clients, and then I immediately got an attorney, explained to him what was going on, and he said, put in your, your resignation via letter. And so I did that, put in my two weeks, and just explained to my clients, our clients, that you know something was not right. You're going to need to work it out with Ed. One day, as the 800 exchange circles the drain, Leah stops by the office to see Paul. I had my kids with me. I walked in, and Ed's office door was open, and Kenny was sitting there in between Ed and I, and Ed wouldn't look at me. And I thought, nothing has happened between Ed and I, and nothing has happened between Ed and Paul. Why won't he look at me? And I walked into Paul's office, and the hair on the back of my neck just stood up. And I had this overwhelming sense of, like, take my kids and get out. And I never went back in the office after that. Hadn't always been that way. She remembers Ed welcoming them to Southern California just months ago. Ed let us use his car, um, took us out to lunch. Like, I held his kids. It wasn't, at the time, nothing seemed off. But now, now Ed won't even look her in the eye. Leah doesn't know what he's cooking up, only that she and Paul don't want to be there to find out. And I remember him saying that Ed's not being honest And I looked at him and I said, what are we going to do? And he he smiled and he said, I'm going to take you home to your mama. (laughs) And so within, I think, three days, we packed up the house and we left. It was this feeling of something's wrong. We have to get out. Paul's exit isn't pretty. When he went to collect his property from the 800 exchange, he says Kenny Kraft, Ed Shin's personal assistant, wouldn't let him in. By this time, Paul was so beaten down... He says he was beyond caring, so he just left. Without his stuff and without a paycheck, he puts Leah and the girls on a plane, gets into the family car, and heads north. I didn't want to be a part of Ed's world anymore. I knew it was going to get worse. And so I flew them home, and I drove our car home and immediately got in a wreck on the freeway. Two semis smashed into me on the way home. It's pretty intense. The fish lived, though. <laughs> the fish lived. Yeah, we had a little fish in the car. I was bringing up. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> a day later, Paul and his car, both dented and bruised, limp into his parents' driveway in Bend, Oregon. He, his family, and that goldfish named Junie Bubbles are alive and reunited. But now, Paul and Leah going to have to rebuild the life that Chris had lured them away from only a year ago. 
On December 8th, Steve Smith again gets on his computer. He wants to let Chris know that Paul really needs his big brother. He writes, Chris, please give me a call ASAP. But in the next breath, Steve Smith fires a warning shot, just in case Ed Shin has somehow taken over Chris's email account. If this is Ed Shin and I find out you have hurt or injured either of my sons, I am going to f*** you up. Your nightmare has just begun. Nine days later, there's a response, actually a barrage of them. It's as if Chris has finally logged on after weeks offline and found an inbox brimming with emails. Many of the messages he is about to write reinforce his family's worst fears. Chris's emails are being voiced by an actor. In this one to his father, he says he's made it to South Africa. The emails start to pour in just after 2.30 a.m. Pacific time, which would be after 12.30 p.m. in South Africa. Hey, Dad. I just finally got to Johannesburg and tried calling Paul internationally. His phone line is disconnected, though. I'm going to head back up and head back west so I can be closer to civilization. Then, five minutes later, another email to Steve. It seems meant to reassure, but it doesn't. Dad, I'm fine. Stop tripping. I just needed to get some out of my head. This last year has been the worst year of my life. I even contemplated suicide when I was drinking heavily and taking all that Lunesta you gave me. He caught that dig, right? Drinking heavily and taking all that Lunesta you gave me. So if Chris does kill himself, it'll be his dad who gave him the pills? But then Chris turns to the topic of his beloved kid brother. What's going on? Is Paul in trouble? His emails don't seem like anything's wrong. Then, just two minutes later, Chris seems to be freaked out about what his ex-partner might have done. Jesus, what did Ed do to Paul? Is he okay? Dad, I need your number again. I didn't bring a cell phone with me. I'm headed back up to Morocco and Egypt. I'll try to figure out a way to get a hold of you then. Chris promises an end to this journey, but this next message also gives a glimpse of something terrifying. I'm trying to get Paul to come down to Costa where we last surfed. I found a conflict diamond for Paul. Gonna give it to him for his birthday I missed. LOL. On the one hand, the Smith family will surely rejoice at the brothers reuniting in their favorite surf spot in Costa Rica. On the other hand, a conflict diamond? Given his bizarre behavior mixed with his thing for conspiracy theories, it's hard to tell if he's joking. After all, conflict diamonds are called blood diamonds for good reason. They're often sold to purchase weapons used in the wars that have bathed Central Africa in blood. Morality aside, buying or selling them is strictly illegal and extremely dangerous. Minutes after firing off that conflict diamond email, Chris abruptly switches gears again. His lawyer, Ernesto Aldover, gets an email saying Chris has no plans to ever return to the U.S. I've withdrawn all my funds and will not be on the record with the U.S. anymore. Then, just after 4 a.m., an email pops up in Paul's inbox. But Chris is not checking to see how his brother is doing. Mostly, he just sounds paranoid. If this is Paul, reply from the right email with these. What was the model of our boat that we grew up riding on? What car did I drive before the rover when I was at LP? On December 17th, Debbie Smith is up before dawn. 
It's now part of her painful, anxious morning routine, obsessively checking for emails from her wandering son. But with this batch, it finally feels like she's getting her boy back. Her relief is palpable. She writes, We had not heard from you since November 1st. We thought maybe you'd been killed and Ed had covered it up. Paul said you were fine. Just too much Lanesta. And we really wanted to believe him. But we're not going to be stupid parents and let it go too long. We love you way too much. Chris's wild itinerary has turned his mom into a news junkie. By now, she's got a nearly encyclopedic knowledge of anything that could kill you in Africa, even the current weather. She warns him about pirates and brewing sandstorms. Chris's responses are breezy. He seems oblivious to his mother's worries. Later that same day, he writes Paul again, first asking to meet him in Costa Rica, then getting down to brass tacks. What is going on? Mom and Dad sent some insane emails. Are you okay, bro? I never bothered to check in with Ed because I got my last payment. Should I be saying something to him or be worried about my buyout? I'm crashing now. Taking Lunesta like the old days. LOL. But I've been sober two weeks, bro. Some of Chris's messages that day make it seem like he's coming unhinged. He complains about losing friends, being sued, and the pressure he'd been under. I was drinking a ton, even mixing prescriptions to see if what would happen, even secretly wanting to die from them. I had to get away. To Debbie and Steve, this is heartbreaking. I love you, Mom. I'm sorry I lost my mind, but I'm getting better now. I'll talk to you as soon as I can get online again, and we'll call when I get down to Costa Rica. Paul knows when and where that will be. Debbie desperately tries to soothe Chris back from his emotional cliff. She writes him, We love you more than life. Never take your life. It is too precious. You are loved by so many people. No mountain is too big to cross. Be careful in the rest of your travels. Love, Mom. A couple days later, the old Chris is back, writing to his dad. I went sandboarding. It was insane. I'm headed to Cape Town with this chick I met. She wants to show me around, then I'm headed back north and will make my way to Rika. I miss Mom, Paul, the girls, and I miss you too. Hopefully we can have some beers and laugh this off. Later that day, he again promises to meet Paul in Costa Rica in just a few weeks. It's an awful long way from Cape Town to Costa Rica, especially if you're going to take a detour through Cairo and North Africa. Not to mention that those places were starting to see uprisings that would topple multiple governments. Then, a week of silence. Christmas Day comes and goes without a peep from the prodigal son. Chris does write Paul and the family the day after. Just realized it's Christmas. Is it snowing in Bend? It's summer down here with it being so warm. I'm headed back up through the Congo. I'll be offline for a couple weeks. Paid some due 100 bucks just to be online, lol. I found a dealer in Rwanda that will pay 30% markup on Krugerrands because the mint ones are impossible to find. Only out here is it like real currency. So Chris's plan is now to travel through war-torn Congo to sell gold to a dealer in Rwanda? To the Smiths, that sounds downright crazy. And we just talk amongst ourselves, like trying to rationalize it, trying to figure out what it all meant. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. 
and it got to the point where, you know, I'm going back up into Rwanda to exchange some Cougarans for cash in Rwanda. And it was just like, okay, you're going to, you're walking around, you're maybe traveling by bus, you got gold in your pocket and you're going to go to Rwanda to exchange it for cash. It just got, at that point, it was just, this isn't making any sense. This guy, he's lost his mind. What comes next about their father shocks them all. I wouldn't have such a hard time if you didn't hit us. Oh, well, I'll find a way to get over it. I'm trying to forgive. I just can't seem to forget. The family is rocked by this allegation. Growing up, the boys were inseparable. And Paul describes their parents as loving, nurturing, and supportive. Nothing close to physically or emotionally abusive. His father is confused and devastated by this accusation that seems to come out of nowhere. But after that, though, there are no more emails, no pictures, never a phone call. It's like Africa has just swallowed him up. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The new year comes. It's now 2011. Chris has now been gone for seven months. No one knows for sure where he is. He could be in Egypt or South Africa, the Congo, Rwanda, or even somewhere at sea. Every message has seemed to come from somewhere unexpected and dangerous. Before he went radio silent, Chris wrote repeatedly about a plan to meet Paul in Costa Rica in February. The brothers loved that place, warm surf by day, cool cervezas at night. Chris even told Paul he'd rented a house, a place where they can work on a big software project that Chris says is sure to make them both rich. He says he'll fund it with the money that Ed paid him. There's plenty to easily support him and Paul's whole family for a year. But when the Smiths call the owner of the Costa Rica house, they're told they'd never heard of a Chris Smith. For the Smiths, this is the last straw. They're now sure that something bad has happened to Chris. Got to the point where we needed some answers. We needed to take some action. Were you worried at this point that Chris hadn't run out of room on the map, but that he was dead? Yeah, at that point, we believed that he had passed away. He had died somewhere in Africa. Debbie Smith thinks her son's scheme to sell gold coins in the Congo or Rwanda made him a target, and she fears... A victim. Yeah, I was searching through all the deaths that were happening in Africa and um, Rwanda and everywhere. And, you know, if anything was a Caucasian male, 30 years or so, old, yeah. just searching everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, just using media, trying to track him down with friends and maybe heard yeah. somebody else had heard from him. 
Mm-hmm. It's a tough time. You know, it's, it makes you sick at your stomach. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes I feel like throwing up. But I didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those days. If you're in some kind of danger, you want Debbie and Steve Smith to be your parents. They are now nearly maniacally dedicated to finding their son. They start their own little investigative unit in Oregon and enlist family and friends. They call Chris's landlord. They try to track down his disappearing and reappearing white Range Rover that Paul says he saw, starting by cold-calling dealers in and around Los Angeles. Paul reluctantly reaches out to Ed Shin. He asks if Ed can help him figure out if Chris has withdrawn cash from those Cayman Island accounts, the ones Ed supposedly put nearly a million dollars into. Ed shoots back an email saying he can't help with that, writing, I have zero access to these accounts and would have no way of knowing. But Steve and Debbie are just getting started. They've written Oregon Senator Ron Wyden's office. Could his staff maybe ask the U.S. State Department for any reports of Americans in Africa being robbed, injured, or killed? Is there any way to locate a U.S. citizen gone missing somewhere in the thousands of miles between Cape Town and Cairo? A Wyden staffer gets in touch. She helped me get in touch with the U.S. Department of State, missing U.S. citizens overseas, and helped me make the report to them. Uh, over the next probably month, I was giving them information, emails. Paul put together a, a kind of a map of all our emails combined, showing his traces going down around South America, crossing over to India, going back down through Africa, and then back up to the Congo. Debbie starts emailing American embassies herself in Africa. Had any U.S. outpost in Africa heard anything about Chris or anyone matching his description? The first response comes from South Africa. It's troubling, to say the least. The government there has no record of Chris entering or leaving South Africa. But Chris's email said he was there. He described dune surfing. He mentioned Cape Town and a woman he was traveling with. There is one ray of hope, a thin one. One State Department official writes her, if your son was hitching rides on boats and entering at various ports, he may have evaded detection when he entered or left. The news from South Africa forces Steve to rethink everything. The worried dad now decides he'll search for his son like he's a cop working a case. When you're looking for a missing person, you start by talking to the people who last saw him. Steve sets out from home in Oregon on the thousand-mile trek to Southern California, and he drives straight into the teeth of a late-season blizzard. He's most of the way there when the California Highway Patrol closes the I-5 freeway at the Grapevine Pass. He's forced to sleep in the cab of his truck. When the pass opens the next day, Steve continues his journey to Orange County to meet with Ed Shin, the last person he knows to have seen Chris. Steve hopes Ed might tell him more about Chris's departure, his plans, his state of mind when he left. But Steve is also deeply suspicious of Ed. The experiences that Chris and Paul have had give him good reason to be. Steve thinks Ed must know something that he hasn't let on. And with all that in his head, he has come completely prepared. Tell me about that meeting with Ed. Uh, I'd actually brought a gun with me, 
And I left in the car because somebody I told Chris, you never bring a gun and a weapon when you think you're going to lose it. And I, but I did take a digital recorder. Say that again? So I left in the car, but I did. So he has the gun, but leaves it in the car. But he decides not to take any chances. This conversation is going to be on tape. Hi, how are you doing? Is it okay right now? Or? Yeah, it's fine. Oh. How you doing? Appreciate this. Yeah, no problem. In the recording, it's sometimes hard to hear Ed clearly. But what is clear is that these days, Ed has time. Business is terrible. The 800 Exchange has downsized and moved to smaller offices. Ed still has his Louis Vuitton briefcase, but he let his assistant, Kenny Kraft, go a couple of months back. Ed seems happy to see Steve. Maybe it's a diversion from his business woes. For his part, Steve is also congenial. He's not there to pick a fight. He just wants to find his son. Uh, I know Chris liked you. I just hope your family's doing okay. You're going to recoup. Well, I appreciate that. No, I mean, we're, you know, we're struggling, but we're surviving. You know, I have a feeling I can help you find him if you really want. Because when... We so the weekend before we went to Vegas together, mm-hmm. and I had because I actually had. Well, see, our biggest thing is we want it safe. Right. We're just freaking out that he may get killed somewhere, mugged or beat up or. Uh, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. just three months is huge for him because he usually called us or uh-huh. talked to us every two weeks, three weeks. Paul, he's always constantly, you know, emailing really? stuff like that. Yeah, and all of a sudden, three months. Ed seems interested, but says he's in the dark about what Chris has been up to and where he might be now. I mean, a lot of people looking for him, he's just not popping up or, really? you know, yeah, he was going to go back up through um, Africa, to the Congo and stuff like that. Africa? Yeah. Wow. It's not a place to be right now and stuff like that, son. The last time that he and I had a meaningful conversation via email, he was in India. Yeah. Because he'd gone down through there, gone across over to Egypt, gone down through the continent, all the way down to the very bottom to I think it was um, Cape Town, Africa. Okay. That's a very... The conversation starts off low-key, but Ed seems intent on painting a very unflattering picture of Chris. Chris isn't around to defend himself, of course, so Ed can say pretty much what he likes. He says Chris took a lot of drugs and mixed sleeping pills with booze. It's a cocktail that can really mess you up. Well, he was taking Lunesta... He would take it, and then he would drink, and then he would write scripts. And then there was that night in the office. It says Chris was blitzed. It was ugly. That night, he barfed and pissed, and, like, there was a broken wine bottle, and there was, like, wine sprayed all over the wall. Ed's not done. He keeps going, telling Steve Chris loves uppers, too. I don't know if you want to hear this, but, I mean, you like to snort coke. Yeah. Well, Pretty sure he did. Yeah, I already understood that. It didn't work as a pressure, I guess. If Ed means to bait him, Steve doesn't bite. Ed presses on. It wasn't just the drugs. There was his personality. He says Chris was creative, but seemed paranoid, depressed, determined to get away. But he would talk like these really crazy things about like you know suicide. This was the exact conversation. It was like my life. You know, I lost all my friends. I have not, I really have nothing to live for. So you got to get out. 
this business is yeah draining you. Yeah. This is the lead gen business. I mean, I just like, but I think you know, you're you're just. I mean, your you know your personality and what you want to do. I mean, this is not for you. This is a grind. Yeah. And you're. I mean, you're a free spirit type of guy. Yeah. And it's like we're on the verge of a settlement here. You're being sued. I mean, what do you want to do? He's like, well, I don't want to be here. So I'm leaving. He's like, I'm out. He's like, after I build this, you know, I want to cash out. I'm going to live, you know, surf for the rest of my life. That's exactly what he said. It tells Steve he's paid off $800,000 in restitution and penalties. He did the honorable thing. He cleared the company name. Ed makes it clear he thinks Chris took the easy way out. He even tells Steve it was Chris who was to blame for Ed's troubles. It was Chris who showed him how to skim that money from his former benefactor, Joe Gray. And then ultimately, so what happened was, you know, he showed me how to work the system. And that's why I started taking money. That was right. Steve's pretty sure that's not true because prosecutors had cleared Chris of having anything to do with Ed's embezzlement even before he left. But now, Ed says, there are even darker clouds on their legal horizon. Chris's former employer, Leadpoint, is suing both Chris and the 800 Exchange. And Ed says that suit is nothing compared to what the 800 Exchange is facing from the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC is alleging some of the debt relief ads the 800 Exchange put out, the ones Chris wrote misled people into believing their problems with creditors could be solved quickly. And not only that, they made it seem like the debt settlement services were part of a government-approved program. The FTC contends those claims were deceptive and that Ed, Chris, and the 800 Exchange now need to cough up $9 million. Even on this, Steve seems sympathetic. Now, the government's upset about everybody for everything. He just, you know, he's more good at, uh, I don't know what you call it, gifted or better at building things, not dealing with business where you're probably better doing business right. or whatever and stuff like that. Everybody's got their forte and stuff like that. Nearly 20 minutes in, Ed finally gets to the point. I can tell you this. I know he got a fake passport. 100%. It's a meandering tale, one that starts with a man who calls himself Johnny Vegas. And then um, he referred Chris to this other guy in L.A. and got him the passport. So once you have the passport... Ed assures Steve that if they can find that contact in Vegas, he can lead them to the guy in L.A. who got Chris the fake passport. If they get from him the details of Chris's fake passport, then maybe they'll be able to track Chris down. You know, I, mean, I am kind of worried. I didn't know that he was going to Africa. Yeah. But but he was having some fun. He went sandboarding down at uh, Johannesburg or something. Really? Yeah. And he emailed, he had fun doing that, and met some people. He came up to Cape Town. He said he was going to go up through the middle, up through the Congo there. Steve only wants to make contact with Chris, he says, like any parent would. He thinks Chris is having fun, but yeah. Family's worried. Follow up. I'm just trying to find if he's okay. Right. That's all we're worried about. Yeah. Ed says he can help. He'll make some calls. Hey, anyway, but I really Steve, appreciate we'll it. We'll be in touch tomorrow. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. All right. You got my phone number. So. Yes. Hey, I really appreciate your time. Right. And I'll say we get a hold of him and get him over here and get things settled up. Okay. All right. Appreciate Thank it. you. Well, I sure hope this is still on a record. 
so Steve finally has a new and promising lead. To pursue it, he needs to find Ed's contact, that Johnny Vegas character. Ed says the way to find that guy is through someone whose real name we won't be using. We'll just call him Mike. Mike is one of those people in Vegas who can help deep-pocketed visitors get access to the best Sin City has to offer. According to Ed, Johnny Vegas has worked for Mike as a driver. Most people would be daunted by the prospect of diving down a rabbit hole to track down a document-forging criminal. Steve Smith is not most people. He's a dad with a missing kid. It takes a while, but Steve perseveres. Finally, he gets Mike on the phone. Yeah, Mike says he knows Johnny. He's looking for him, too. In fact, he's gone to the cops to try to find him. He's filed a police report alleging Johnny has run off with some of his stuff, like his Cadillac Escalade. The Smith family could sure use some easy answers about now, but no. Chris is missing, and the guy who Ed says knows the guy who might help locate Chris, Steve can't find him either. In these tapes, Steve doesn't get emotional, but his genuine concern elicits Mike's sympathy. Is Chris your son? Yes. Okay, so I understand. Mike says he would be losing his mind, too, if his kid was missing, and promises Steve to get back to him. When Mike does call Steve back, he says he's heard his former driver might be in Sacramento. Maybe. Steve now has a little more information, but it's not enough to lead him to whomever might have gotten Chris a fake passport. The police, by the way, do catch up with Mike's ex-driver, Johnny. Though Johnny denies he ran off with Mike's Escalade and his other stuff, he is arrested and charged with three felonies. Eventually, he pleads guilty to two counts of misdemeanor theft and pays a thousand bucks in restitution. Months later, after his arrest, Johnny Vegas tells investigators he only knew Ed Shin in passing and doesn't remember any Chris Smith. He denies having any involvement in any shady dealings with either of them. Steve doesn't know it yet, but investigators will eventually agree, concluding that Johnny Vegas had nothing to do with forgers or getting Chris a fake passport. What Steve does know is that he spent untold hours pursuing a lead that Ed Shin had given him, and he's gotten no closer to finding his son. He realizes that going on these wild goose chases is probably not going to find Chris. It's now time to get the police involved. A missing person report will trigger an official police investigation. The cops have the resources to find people and the authority to compel bank, phone, and internet companies to release records of Chris's accounts. The first step, though, is to file that report. Steve goes down to where Chris used to live in Laguna Beach. He talks to members of the department face-to-face. Captain Jason Kravitz remembers hearing about it. Um, but I do remember when he came in because um, I'd never hearing the story about his son emailing from around the world. And um, for about a year, they'd been receiving these and that he lived in our town. Um, and his brother also worked for the same company. For Laguna Beach, this missing person case is an odd one for sure. It's certainly nothing like the cases they're used to, like 
DUIs on the two roads that lead in and out of their tiny community, and burglars who prey on the town's wealthy residents. Here's the best way to put it. We report our crime statistics to the FBI. Part of the crime statistics are you list a um, a property crime that happened, and then you list the dollar amount associated with it. Well, sometimes the FBI will call us to say, hey, I think you made a mistake here. You reported, you know, five burglaries with a loss of $5 million. And we're like, nah, that's, that's not a mistake. The story they're hearing is that this missing guy, Chris Smith, who only lived in Laguna Beach for just about a month, left on a boat almost a year ago. He's been sending emails from places like India, Egypt, and South Africa. For months, Chris's family accepted what the emails told them, that Chris was stressed out and needed to get away. But now the emails have stopped and the questions have multiplied. So Laguna Beach puts one of its senior investigators on the case. Her name is Louise Calouse, Sergeant Louise Calouse. Next on Cutthroat Inc., Sergeant Calouse begins her investigation and it also leads her to Ed Shin. That's when Ed tells her something no one expected. Okay, I, I really don't want to talk about this, but I literally tried to kill myself. Cutthroat Inc. is a production of ABC Audio and 2020, reported by me, Matt Gutman, written by me and our producer, Richard O'Regan, produced and edited by Susie Liu and Oluwakemi Aladisui. Additional reporting by producers Tim Gorin, Sonny Antrim. Our editorial producer was Duan Perrin. Casey Tomchek was our production assistant. Additional support by Lydia Noon, Dana Schaefer, Jenny Goldstein and Marwa Mwaki. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Our researchers are Felisa Fine, Natalie Savitz, and Brad Martin. Special thanks to Josh Cohan and Stacia Deshishku. Terry Lickstein is our executive producer of this podcast, and David Sloan is our senior executive producer of Network Primetime Content. I'm Matt Gutman.